our message today, um, there's a question that I often think about, and it's the question of, man, I could have been born at any time, at any place, anywhere. And I think so often we end up where we're so close to just the life that we live that we, we lose sight of the fact that, man, we could have been a part of any other moment in history. Like recently, as we're, as we're seeing, um, you know, uh, a virus sprout in Asia, I was reminded that, you know, I could have been born in 13th century Europe, you know, and battled the plague, 106 degree fevers and, you know, bloody cobs and 80% mortality rate. Like, I'm glad I wasn't born during that time. Or maybe I could have been born in America, but in the beginning of America. You see, in colonial America, the average person only bathed a couple times per year. So for those of you who are germaphobes, like, be glad that you were born today or else you'd smell like a middle school boy all the time. Um, and, and then you could have been born during the 19th century in France. And when you got sick, you wouldn't have a doctor as wise or as skilled as Dr. Bundy. Your doctor would have prescribed leeching where you'd attach one of these to your body to pull out all the bad blood. At one point in 18th century, 19th century Europe, 40 million leeches were being imported a year into France because leeching was so popular. And I read this week that leeching is coming back. And I think we should just leave that way back then. You know, our challenges that we face today, you know, aren't leeching, they aren't the plague, they aren't bathing, they're, they're different challenges. See, most of our challenges we face today are, are mental, emotional, spiritual. And if I could summarize one of those challenges in a word, it'd be the word comparison. So much of the anxiety that, that people face today, so much of the, the mental health and the depression and the challenges we face are, are rooted in the, the way that we compare our lives to other people. And a couple years ago, there was a, a young college athlete who was uh, really at the tops in her uh, particular sport uh, who lost her battle with mental health. And in the, in the aftermath, Kate Fagan wrote an article about her struggle and what it represented in Sports Illustrated. And these are Kate's words. Kate said, everyone presents an edited version of life on social media. People share moments that reflect an ideal life, an ideal self. Hundreds of years ago, we sent letters by horseback containing only what we wanted the recipient to read. Fifty years ago, we spoke via the telephone, sharing only the details that constructed the self we wanted reflected. With Instagram, though, one thing has changed, the amount we consume of one another's edited lives. She went on to say, young women growing up on Instagram are spending a significant chunk of each day absorbing each other's filtered images while they walk through their own realities unfiltered. In a recent survey conducted by the Girl Scouts, nearly 73% of girls agreed that other girls tried to make themselves look, quote, cooler than they are, on social networking sites. And so today we compare each other to ourselves to each other incessantly. We compare accomplishments and achievements. We compare possessions. We compare struggles that we're experiencing to somebody else's success. If we are experiencing success as we define it, we're comparing our success to somebody who seems more successful. We're comparing on a daily basis our mundane moments with somebody else's mountaintop moments somewhere else. And I speak about this subject not as somebody who has this all figured out. I speak as somebody who is working through this myself because on a weekly basis, I wake up on a Sunday morning and I have to battle the temptation to appreciate where I am and not compare my experience of church to somebody else's experience of church. And before I even step up on this platform to deliver God's word, I'm tempted to compare what I'm experiencing here to what somebody else is experiencing somewhere else. 
And, the, and recently, I, I, was, I was going through the scriptures, and uh, I stumbled on a passage that God used to speak to me in a unique way. And at the end of the Gospel of John, there's a story about Jesus walking along the beach with uh, Peter. I think it stuck out to me because it was a really cold day in Prescott that day, and I was longing for the beach. And so Peter's walking along with Jesus, and Jesus is helping Peter to move on from his moment of greatest failure. It's that moment where Peter denies that he knows Jesus three times, and Peter and Jesus have a conversation about forgiveness. And when that conversation is done, Peter turns to Jesus and he goes, hey, Jesus, what about John? What about him? It's kind of this moment of, I've had this great experience with Jesus, but I'm going to compare my experience to somebody else's experience. And, and I don't know what your image of Jesus is. I think some of us have an image of Jesus that he's, he's kind of like Andy Griffith. He's just always the nice guy who says the nice things. But Jesus sometimes just cuts to the heart of the matter. And in John chapter 21, I read something that I've read, I don't know, 200 times but I needed to hear it myself. Jesus turns to Peter, who's comparing himself to John, and here's what Jesus says. He says, what is that to you? You follow me. He's talking to Peter about John, and he goes, yeah, I may do this with John. This may be John's experience, but Peter, what is that to you? And I felt like God was grabbing me through the pages of the Bible and kind of grabbing me right here and saying, Scott, you're comparing your life to all of these other people. What is that to you? You follow me. You don't follow John. You don't follow Peter. You don't follow whoever you just scrolled past on Instagram. You follow me. And so I come to you today as somebody who's been spoken to about my own comparison. And you might say, Scott, if if we're all struggling with comparison, how do we fight comparison? What's the answer? Well, I think one of the answers is a surprising thing. It's to celebrate. I believe the way that we fight comparison is celebration. On the front of your bullets and the title of this message is listed, it's learning the lost art of celebration in an age of comparison. Now, today, for some of you, the challenge is going to be that you don't feel like celebrating. You look at your life today and you go, Scott, there's not anything worthy of being celebrating. Well, that's why you're going to need to embrace the discipline of celebration. You go, Scott, those words are opposites. Celebration sounds fun. Discipline sounds not so fun. That's, that's right. Because sometimes celebration is something you feel in you. And sometimes celebration is a discipline that you choose that enables you to become who you need to become. So today, as Clovis mentioned, we're having a meeting at the end of our service. It's our annual meeting. And over the last couple of years, what we tried to do is bring some of the things we discussed in that meeting into the service and to celebrate them. And I want to share with you a little bit of the why behind why celebration is so important. And so our big idea today is this, that when we shift from comparison to celebration, what happens is that God replaces our jealousy with his joy. When, when we live by comparison, what happens is that jealousy becomes implanted in our hearts. And, and what happens is when we replace that comparison with celebration, God begins to uproot that jealousy. And then he replaces it. He infuses it with his joy. Today, what I want to do in the time I have is I want to share with you five surprising things that happen when we make this shift from comparison to celebration. And here's the first one. We celebrate because of who God is and what God has done. 
This is the point for those of you who say, Scott, I don't feel like I have anything to celebrate in my life. We're not celebrating in our lives because of what we're experiencing. We're celebrating because of who God is and what God has done. In the book of Psalms, chapter 118, the psalmist said, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. In another place, the psalmist says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The kind of celebration that we see outlined in scripture is not a celebration where you have a moment that causes celebration. The celebration we see in scripture is in response to the character and the consistency and the actions of God. And that's why so many of us don't celebrate well, because we wait until we experience something that naturally drives us to, to celebrate. When the discipline of celebration says, lift your eyes from your circumstances and don't celebrate because your circumstances demand it, celebrate because you're looking at the character and the nature of God, who God is, what God has done, and that's why you're celebrating and I think there's some of you today that you have a moment you're waiting for. When I finally get there, when we finally experience this, when we get over that hump, when I climb this mountain, when I reach that point, Scott, that's the moment when I will celebrate. If that's you, I just want to challenge you with something this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've experienced the love and the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness, and the redemption, and the second hand, second chance that God has given you as his child, as his follower, my question is this, what if you already have enough to celebrate? What if you began to recognize all that God has done and who God has been in your life and what if you began to recognize the magnitude of that? I think if we began to realize who God is and what God has done, then just where we are today, no more gifts, no more blessings, no more new provision, we would have enough to celebrate all the rest of our days. See, that's the reason why we're celebrating. Because otherwise what happens is that we milk some experience in the past through celebration, and we go, okay, I celebrated that. Okay, God, you got to do something next for me to celebrate. And so what ends up happening is we celebrate not the giver, but the gift. We don't celebrate God as provider. We celebrate him only when he provides in the way that we see fit. And we are celebrating who God is and what God has done, not our expectation of an experience with him. The second shift I want to talk about today is that celebration helps us to take God seriously and ourselves not so seriously. There's some of us that struggle with taking ourselves too seriously, and we get it mixed up. We get those flipped. That's why I've always loved Romans 12, 3, where the Apostle Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. While we have new devices and tools and technologies today, it is an old problem to be drunk on yourself. 
And when I said that phrase, drunk on yourself, I believe some of your minds went to somebody that you know that's drunk on themselves. The challenge is all of us have had moments where we were drunk on ourselves, where we thought of ourselves not with sober judgment, but we thought of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. There's some of us that we actually think less of ourselves than we ought to think. And what happens when we celebrate who God is and what God has done and how God sees our circumstances, how he sees us, what it does is it resets our perspective. I'm not a big gamer these days, but when I was growing up, my brother and I, we wore out our Nintendo 64 playing Mario Kart. And it got a little bit intense and violent sometimes. And if one of us was playing the game and we were losing and we didn't want to actually lose the race, we would turn to the device and push this little button that said reset in the middle of the race so that we didn't lose. Kind of just wiped everything out and started all over. And, and celebration is a bit of that. It pushes the reset button on the way we see ourselves and the way we see God. And it ensures that we're taking God seriously and not ourselves. Because if you can't laugh at yourself, if you can't see yourself with sober judgment, then you'll never celebrate God for who he is and what he's done. And you'll get confused and you think that I have to take myself seriously. And when you take yourself too seriously, what happens is you end up taking the place of God. When you take God seriously, you can actually take a proper place in light of that. Number three, what this celebration shift does is it allows us to see transformation. Celebration allows us to see transformation. I know all of us have dreams and hopes for the future, places we want to go, things we want to do, and the people we want to become. And the hope that fuels that is Philippians 1.6, where Paul says, I am sure of this. Your Bible may say, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And the challenge is, is for some of us, we go, I am not who I need to be today. I'm not where I want to be today. And I'm going to wait until I get there. And then when I get there, I'll celebrate. You're a, um, you're a finish line celebrator, if that's the case. You go, Scott, when I cross that finish line, then I'll celebrate. But the problem is, if you wait to celebrate until you get to the finish line, you may give up along the way. And I want to challenge you this morning when it comes to your own transformation to not wait for the finish line, but to look for a mile marker. He goes, Scott, I'm not who God wants me to be. I know. Guess what? Neither am I. But if I waited until that day, that would be a celebration where everyone but I was present for. It's called a funeral. But guess what? I may not be where God wants me to be yet, and you may not be where God wants you to be one, yet, one day yet, but you are not where you once were. You are not who you once were. Even if you have the same struggle, you may be struggling with it differently. My wife and I recently were working through a challenge in our marriage because Newsflash, pastors have problems in their marriages too. And we're working through this challenge and we reflected that the way we were dealing with this challenge was different than the way we would deal with a similar challenge 10 years ago. It's still frustrating that we're having to work through this 
It's still a similar struggle, but guess what? We are struggling with it so much better, so much healthier, so much more differently than before. Because we're celebrating the progress along the way. And what Dan Allender says is, what is your style of celebrating an ending? Do you only throw large parties after someone graduates or gets married or dies? If so, then all the other endings in your story are lost in the wake of another day's busyness. Perhaps one of the reasons that you and I don't party well is we don't know what to do with the tragedies that linger in our life. Can you imagine receiving this invitation? Join me in a celebration of no longer believing I'm stupid. <laughs> what kind of party would that be, you know? I, I, I don't know. I kind of want to go to see it. But that's the, that's the essence. I'm finding this milestone that is a step towards where I want to be. And I'm not just going to celebrate the final transformation. I'm going to keep celebrating the steps of transformation all along the way. And you might think that what it does is it kills your motivation, but what it actually does is it gives you hope that you're making progress. And it points to the work that God is doing that you hadn't noticed before. Celebration allows us to see transformation. Celebration also lifts our eyes from the temporary to the eternal. And all of us, for as long as there's been a human race, have been tempted to just see things that are temporary and not see the things that are eternal. In Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul says, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And so often what happens is that we get caught up in the things of this life that we forget the things that God is doing that are eternal. And what celebration does is it lifts our eyes from our light and momentary and temporary troubles, and it lifts them to the things that God is doing that are going to last eternally. And that's why celebration is so hard. For some of us, celebration is hard because of the family we grew up in. We weren't weren't trained how to do it. Maybe you've been through a really hard season of life, or maybe you can't remember a season in life that wasn't hard, and so you've never learned to celebrate. Or maybe, like me, you have that personality trait that never stops long enough to celebrate. That's my challenge, because something good happens, and I go, okay, what's next? I experience something that's really good. I go, okay, what's next? And today is my discipline of celebration. Because guess what? I have so many other things I'd love to preach about. But I felt like God saying, Scott, don't move on to what's next before you give me praise for what I've already done. Don't move on to what you want to do before you stop and recognize what I have already done. And here's what I've discovered. If, if you're like me, that it's in those moments when I don't feel like celebrating that I need to celebrate the most. And if you go, Scott, there's, there's no reason for me to celebrate today. I think you need to celebrate today so that you can take your eyes off of the things that are worrying you and burdening you and discouraging you and put your eyes on the one who is going to carry you through it. I don't know why God does certain things in life and doesn't do other things. His ways make no sense to me. But guess what? I'm part of the long line of millions and billions of people who've not understood the ways of God. 
And there are only certain things in life that will make sense in light of eternity. But if I can recognize that God sees things that I don't see, if you can recognize that God is at work in ways that you don't understand in the moment, then even in light of eternity, when you will understand it, you can celebrate now in the temporary, even though you don't. God uses celebration to lift our eyes to a larger, wider, more eternal perspective. And then finally, celebration returns the pen back to God. Celebration returns the pen back to God. Last summer, we read, read through and studied through Ecclesiastes as a church. And in Ecclesiastes 3, the writer famously says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And for many of us, the challenge is that we don't celebrate because it doesn't make sense to us. We don't understand it. We don't, we don't know how to give words to it. And so we go, I don't see it as beautiful. I don't see it as celeb- celebratory. I don't get what God is doing. And so I'm just going to hold on to that as I wrestle to understand it. And what celebration does is it surrenders the pen back to God and says, God, you make sense of this. Shauna Nequist says, describes this when she says, when you realize that your life is a story that could be told a thousand different ways, that you could tell it over and over as a tragedy, but you choose to call it an epic, that's when you start to learn what celebration is. When what you see in front of you is so far outside of what you dreamed, but you have the belief, the boldness, the courage to call it beautiful instead of calling it wrong, that's celebration. It's choosing to say, I'm not going to label my life the way I feel like labeling my life. I'm going to give God the pen and allow him to tell me what this season is. Years ago, my friend Ken reminded me, and whenever I called him, I heard it on, on his voicemail, this phrase. He would say, Scott, God's not in your story. You're in his. So give him the pen. I feel like if Ken was here, he'd say, Scott, you're not the captain of your soul. He is. So give him the pen. You're not the author of your story. He's writing it. So give him the pen. And if these things are true, that it's God's story, that he's the captain, and he's writing it, And what celebration does is it surrenders the interpretation of the events of our lives from our own changing emotions or the things we scroll past on social media, and it gives it to God and say, God, I'm going to let you tell me what this is. I'm going to let you tell me how I should feel about this. I'm going to look for you in this story, and I'm going to celebrate in faith what you're doing now in light of eternity. And in a world of comparison, that kind of celebration is a discipline. That kind of celebration is a radical revolutionary act. That kind of celebration is an act of bold faith that I think sets you up with an opportunity to tell people why you have hope like that. Peter, later on in writing after that moment with Jesus on the beach, said, always be prepared to have an answer for the hope that is within you. 
And when you can celebrate in the face of circumstances that don't make sense, that don't feel like celebrating, that's an opportunity to give an answer about why on earth would you do that? That's where the joy and the opportunity comes. So this morning, we're going to give you an opportunity to practice that with us together. You saw some balloons when you came in, and so we're going to spend some time celebrating some things as a church that have happened this year. We're going to talk about some numbers, and we're going to talk about a story. And some of you have have a little bit of a cynicism, I know, about churches and numbers. And I just want to speak to the cynics in the room, because I am you. And I want to tell you this. That each of these numbers that we are going to celebrate, we have a belief about. And that belief can be summed up like this, that every number has a name, every name has a story, and every story matters to God. And each of these numbers we're going to share isn't a cold number. It's names, faces, stories, testimonies. It's God at work. And some of you, you have, a, you have a hard time clapping in church or being expressive in church because you grew up in a church where you got bad looks for that. We are not that church. So feel the freedom to celebrate. If you snuck in a noisemaker, you can pull that out now. Um, I had some staff members who had some nefarious plans this morning. And so we're going to celebrate some things that God has done. So last year in 2019, on average, every Sunday, we saw 579 people gather in this place to worship and praise God, which is really, really cool. We can celebrate that. In 2018, when we gathered to celebrate Christmas, we had 699 people here. And then in 2019, we celebrated Christmas, we had 865 people here. That's a 20% increase. This collection of blue balloons over here celebrates the 24 people who got baptized in 2019 at Cornerstone Church. So... These, uh, I was told these are magenta. These magenta balloons amidst the sea of yellow represent that 58% of Cornerstone is involved in a community group that meets every single week. That's the highest percentage in our church's history. These orange balloons uh, represent the percentage of our church that serves on one of our serving teams, and that's 46% of people who attend Cornerstone. Again, the highest in our history, so we can celebrate that as well. In 2019, you generously gave over $1.2 million to the mission of God in this place and around the world. We can celebrate that as well. And for some context... The amount of money that comes from that that goes to missions is 15%. And because of that, you gave in 2019 to missions more than our church gave in its entirety in 2009. So that's pretty cool as well. We can celebrate that. And sometimes it's hard when you talk about numbers to see faces and names and stories. And so we wanted to share with you a particular story of transformation that just encouraged us in a special way. And so I'm going to invite Jamie Lynn Hines up right now, and she's going to share a little bit of her story with you. Give her a round of applause as she comes. We got a mic right here for you. Good morning. Good morning. Um, So, Jamie, your story, the part that we're going to tell today, kind of begins in a place that's near and dear to my heart, Las Vegas. It's my hometown. It's where I grew up. And um, you were there a couple years ago in a really low moment in your life. Tell us what was happening and what God did in, in Las Vegas that week. 
Yeah, I was going through a particularly challenging time in my life. Um, I had, my relationship had ended. I was suddenly a single mom. I bought a house, now I own this house, and uh, my career was ending too. I was working in the Whole Foods market industry, and we all woke up one morning and Amazon had bought them. So um, everything was shifting, and it felt like things were really crumbling around me. And uh, spoiler alert, they were crumbling around me. And um, I had a dear friend who had had a conversation with me about God and my relationship with God. And so I'm driving down the road in Vegas. I had that territory, so I was working out there. And I just was overwhelmed with sadness and grief. So I just kind of looked up and said, hey, can we chat maybe if you have time? And um, I said, you know, show me a sign. And I looked up in that moment, and there was a billboard that said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And it was the face of Jesus, like the really soft, you know, beautiful, angelic Jesus version. (laughs) And I just, I pulled the car over, and I just broke. You literally got your sign. It was a sign. (laughs) I was like, okay, I got it. (laughs) And um, I think it was that person who had asked you about your relationship with God. They invited you here. Yes, that person is here today, and I love you, and I'm very grateful for you. So you came here the very next Sunday when you got back to town, and tell us about what that experience was like coming here for the first time. Yeah, I was... I had been beating myself up for a very long time, a uh, prayer to walking through these doors, and um, I can't remember the exact first time, the first five times, I would say kind of melded into one, but I'm a music freak, my son and I both play music, so it was the music that was a transcendental experience. I was walking in and I was thinking, wow, this must be a special guest today, you know, this is amazing, and then I came back the next time, I'm like, oh, this is every time? So uh, it was really the music that, that brought me in. And uh, yeah, like I said, I was just really, I was broken down. And I came in here and I just felt this en- enormous love like I had never felt in my life. So. Wow. And you came, it was a number of months you came. And then you were here on Easter last year. And that was a really special day as well. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, so I had always believed in God, thanks to my beautiful mom who's here today. She raised me to believe in God. Um, But when it came to the resurrection story, it was kind of like, meh, not too sure about that, you know? I'm like, I can get on board with all the other things, but, you know, that's just not, I'm okay with that. And that day, there was something about the way that you translated the story and its historical context. Um, You made mention that there were scholars that said that this, this happened. And something shifted in me. It was just, it was a powerful shift where I said, well, of course he rose from the dead this ascendant master, of course that happened. And I had never gone there before in my life. So that day when you said, is there anyone in the room who'd like to raise their hand and surrender their life to Christ? I was like, I'm in. (laughs) And, um, you know, in that, in that moment I did, I gave the pen over, like you said this morning. Well, I can, uh, it was special for me that day because I saw what seemed like a number of hands and then that week, Jen Myers, one of our team members, said, hey, let me tell you about one of those hands. Mm-hmm. And um, she shared with me a little bit of your story, and it was just, it was so encouraging. Um, and in the weeks to come, you actually reached out, and you actually started serving with Jen in our children's ministry, you know, later on last year. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, so I had signed up to be a big sister in the Big Brothers Big Sisters program, and we had our little for quite a few months, and we got really connected to her, and then just one day she was gone. Uh, there was an emergency in her family, and she had to leave us, and I was so brokenhearted, and I was, I was really angry at God. I felt really betrayed that he would, you know, put me in this situation and then just take it all away. And so that morning, I, I emailed you and said, okay, I, I want to be of service. I didn't know what it meant. And you got me in touch with Jen. And, um, you know, when I walked through these doors, I didn't feel worthy of, of much. And to, sorry. It's okay. To have all of you who trust me with your children, with your children, has been just a profound experience for me to learn to love myself again. So That's really awesome. Nice. Well, I'm so glad that you believed what we believe, that you're worthy. And uh, it's an awesome thing to see you come in with your son who yeah. serves with you, right? Yeah, my son, my nine-year-old son, he, he goes with me twice a month, and, and we serve down there in the, in, the, in the Sunday school, and it's been a wonderful experience for him, and I've just watched his heart just open, and it's been amazing to watch That's him. Awesome. Yeah. Now, your, your transition in life is not done. You told me this morning you're literally moving today. That is So yeah, you're moving, moving Prescott Valley into Prescott, <laughs> so you're not leaving us, but you're yeah. actually getting a little closer. Um, but I'm sure there's a lot of things that are still going on in your life. There's lots of changes, lots of challenges. You know, these people have a new connection to you because they've heard your story today. And uh, they're praying people. They pray for me, and I feel it. And I know some of them are going to want to pray for you. How can they pray for you in the days ahead? Definitely pray for us because we're moving. <laughs> but um, I had an interesting experience. God led me to an Instagram page of all things. And it was a page of all these children who are in um, the foster system. And they're older children, lots of siblings. And I was just drawn into this website, and I was reading all their stories, and I was like, I have to do something here, and I don't know exactly what it is. But I went to my son, and I showed him, and just without flinching, without thinking, he just looked at me, and he said, yeah, Mommy, we got to do this. And so I don't know what it means, but I would love some prayers around that. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, we're so grateful for um, what God's done in your life, the story that he's writing. It definitely hasn't gone the way that you thought, um, but you aren't alone and you're loved, and you're worthy, and we're so glad to be on this, this journey with you. I want to pray for you right now, if that's all right. Thank Would you, you join so. me in praying for Jamie? God, thank you so much just for the story that you're writing in her life. Thank you for the way that she has allowed herself to be open to what you wanted to do in her heart. And as you continue to work in your own special and powerful way, we pray that she would not only see herself the way you do, but she would see her future from your perspective and she would continue to trust you and step into those opportunities and those callings that you're putting in her heart. Thanks for allowing this to be a place where people can come in and find healing, to be loved where they are, but to experience you taking them somewhere they haven't even imagined. We thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Jamie. Appreciate it. Let's give it a You know, I, I think sometimes uh, when we end messages like this and we talk about next steps, the thought is, well, that's just kind of the you know, next part of the message. But those two words really summarize the heartbeat of Cornerstone. We believe that we all have next steps all the time. And part of that is, is a belief in the fact that none of us have arrived. And, and none of us ever will arrive. 
So what that means is that we always have a next step. And one day for Jamie, it was coming here for the first time. And then another day, it was surrendering life to Jesus. And then another day, it was getting involved in serving. And now today, it's figuring out what God is stirring in her heart when it comes to this calling. But, but if none of us arrive, and none of us ever arrive, then we always have a next step. And that's why we end messages with next steps, because we want to make sure that what happens here doesn't stay here. And if you go, Scott, I think I've got things figured out. I think, I, I think I've arrived. I would say you're in for a really rude awakening. And you're not going to spend a whole lot of time at Cornerstone because we're going we're to make you really uncomfortable because we're going to challenge you to take next steps. And so today, the next steps begin with this. We want to challenge you to look for a milestone in your life to celebrate, to find something that says, man, I wasn't where I used to be and I'm not where I want to be, but right here, this is something worthy of being celebrated. And it might be something small, might be something large, but you go, I'm going to pick that and I'm going to celebrate that. And then two, we're going to challenge you to plan a celebration. I I almost said plan a party, but I think sometimes people have like kind of weird ideas around that. But just plan a celebration. It could be expensive. It could have balloons. It could be simple. It could be just you and somebody else. But, But find a way to celebrate that milestone. And then when you do, celebrate it well. I think it's so sad that so often the, the word that people think of when they hear Christian is not celebration. They hear killjoy. And I think we should be the most well-known, best celebrators. The people that you want to invite when you're ready to recognize how awesome a moment something is. And then after you celebrate well, I want to encourage you, then go, what's next? Then and only then, after you've celebrated something and experienced that perspective shift, then you turn to what's next. And in the time I have left, I want to share with you a couple things that are next for us in 2020. We mentioned that we celebrated 24 baptisms this year, and that's awesome. But we always want to be a place where people like Jamie can come and discover what she's found. And so this year, we set a bold goal. We want to baptize 40 people in 2020. That's more people than we've ever baptized in one year in the history of our church. And to be honest, I have no idea how we're going to do it. But that's okay, because you're going to help me. So in your bulletin today, on the back of your handout, there's a post-it note. And there's a variety of colors of them. We've got a team that that actually folds and stuffs your bulletins every week. I want to give them a shout-out, because they told me no more post-it notes, Scott, because they put each of these on your your handouts this week. But with your post-it note, if you'll pull it out and pull it off your, I saw the sound, you're actually doing it, cool. Um, I want you to take that note this week and write someone's name on it. Somebody you know who's where Jamie was. Somebody that God has put you close to for a purpose. And I want you to take this post and note, I want you to put it somewhere where you're going to see it on a regular basis. Maybe it's your bathroom mirror. If you put it in your car, don't put it over your speedometer. You need to see that. Put it like next to your speedometer. Put it up where you work, put it up in the kitchen where you do dishes, but put it up somewhere you can, where you can see it and begin to pray for that person. There's no guarantee that they're going to make a decision to follow Jesus in 2020, but that's okay. You keep praying for them. You keep investing in them. Maybe a first step isn't inviting them to church. Maybe a first step is inviting them to dinner at your house. Maybe it's getting to know them and hearing their story. But you know, if, if only 8% of us who are part of Cornerstone, saw somebody that we knew in this year get baptized, that would, that would hit that 40 number. 8%. 8 of 100. I'm going to ask you to help us get there. Our next goal is that our, we're hoping that that number of 58% of people in groups goes to 70% 
Because one day our dream is that over 90% of our church would be involved in a community group. And a couple weeks ago, we celebrated that we had 57 people join a group in one Sunday. That's awesome. The challenge is that we didn't tell you is we have that many people on a waiting list who want to be part of a group. And the one thing holding us back is the number of facilitators that we have. And so some of you have been part of a group, and we're going to challenge you to step out of your group and launch a new group. Some of you go, man, I, I'm, I hear that. I'm, I'm scared, Scott. We're going to have some of you to lean into that fear. We'll train you. We'll equip you. We'll walk with you. But we're only going to reach that 70% number if we have more facilitators. And we believe that they're here. God's just pricking their heart and asking them to follow him. If you want to learn more about that, you can email Pastor Paul on our team. He's Paul at Prescott Cornerstone to learn more about facilitating group. And then our final number, our goal, is their goal is that we'd see 60% of people who call Cornerstone home serve. We'd move over to that half percentage for the very first time. And some of you were like Jamie. You came in and you were broken. And you found love and welcome and support. And guess what? There's people who are going to come this year who need what you were offered. They need what you were given. And you have an opportunity to create a space for them to discover that too. So if you want to learn more about serving in the new year, you can email Pastor Paul as well. The final thing I want to talk about today is is health. When I came to Cornerstone for the first time in March of 2016, I sat over there. And um, after that, I had lunch uh, at one of our elders' house. And I just heard story after story after story about how God had used this church to be a healing place. The people had come broken from life, broken by the world, and they'd found love and healing. And I've experienced that myself. God's used this place as a conduit of healing in my life. And he's used it in the same way in many of yours. But when God begins to do a special work in a place like that, there's a, a potential. And it's actually the subject of Jesus' final prayer for us in John 17. He says, I don't ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. We weren't disciples then, but we believe in Jesus because of the disciples. That they may be one, Jesus prayed, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. When Jesus had a final thing to pray for, he didn't pray that we would be healthy in terms of our physical bodies. He didn't pray that we would be financially blessed. He didn't pray that we would have a lack of obstacles. The one thing he prayed for is that we would be one. And here's what I believe. Jesus's number one prayer is our enemy's number one attack. In my experience, our enemy Satan doesn't go after churches that are fighting with each other because they're doing a good enough job on their own. He doesn't go after churches where they're devouring each other because they're doing a good enough job on their own. When God begins to move in a place and he works in unprecedented ways, what happens is our enemy goes, bullseye, that's where I'm going. Because I want to stop that. And I believe that as we continue to see God move in ways that he's never moved in our church before, that there's a potential that we could experience attack and opposition like never before. And I want to ask you to join me and praying for the health of our church, that we would be one, that we would support one another, that we would care for one another, that we wouldn't go after one another, but that we would continue to make this place a place where people can be healthy and become healthy and where we can be one. Because the best is yet to come. 
Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.